I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. Today we have four legendary coaches and players. This is probably the majority of doubles titles and mixed doubles titles from 1978 to the year 2000. JL, a two-time mixed doubles Grand Slam finalist and the man in South Africa and a legendary coach on the WTA tour. I see him in the bar often drinking his sorrows away. <laughs> Sitting right next to me, we've got my fellow Midwest boy, Luke Jensen, former number one junior in the world in singles and doubles, who didn't take his talents to South Beach. He took his talents to USC with Rick Leach there. Speaking of USC, Rick Leach, a legend in the game, five-time Grand Slam doubles champion, and from 88 to 91, had been to the finals of every doubles Grand Slam. And then the most oh. famous one of us all, the pretty boy, John yeah. Lloyd. <laughs> there we go. Grand Slam doubles champion. The first male British player to reach a Grand Slam final and was the only male British Grand Slam finalist for 20 years. He carried all the pressure, which we know that UK tennis community can load that pressure up on you. Right? <laughs> Ask him or write a condom. And he handled like a champ. So, guys, this is this 2021 version of the World Team Tennis Coaches Poll. How y'all guys doing? Great. So good. Oh, so great, great to Thanks. be Come here with all you guys. Yeah. Awesome. To ready to go. Re- ready to roll. So, guys, last year was my first team tennis experience, and it was by far the best. I mean, we were all in one location. No late night playing rides with next day matches. Food at our fingertips booze at our fingertips, plenty of practice courts. What do we think about this new venue at Indian Wells this year? JL, yeah, JL, you go ahead. Lloydy, anybody? Oh, well, well, go ahead, Jamal. I think, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's uh, for me, after the slam, it's the biggest, biggest and best event. Um, you know, Indian Wells, Indian Wells Garden is known. I mean, it's spectacular. So I think it's a, it's a great setting for world team tennis. I think the players enjoyed being at one site. Yes, it's 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 tough for the home crowds that we don't have home matches anymore. But for us, it's most important that we do have a season, and you know, for everybody that's worked behind the scenes to get this going, and you know, and, and I look forward to this three weeks every year, hanging out with all these great guys and friends of mine that I played with, and then with the players. It's awesome. So, what a great league, what a great format. So it's just I can't wait for the season to start. Yeah, Rick, you're just gonna drive there. You know, this is like no fair. We all got to hop on planes and JL's <laughs> got to go halfway around the world. And Rick gets to like, he can coach a match and go home tonight. You know, that's, that's unfair. <laughs> you got a home court advantage. No, uh, I think I want to be staying down in the desert. You know, it's, <laughs> it, uh, it's a treat to be down there. You know, it's such a destination vacation for people. 
And uh, I always enjoy playing the tournament at Indian Wells. You know, it's a two-hour drive, but you feel like you're out, you know, so far away from everything. And uh, the tennis garden is, is a unique place. Uh, Stadium Court 2 is a beautiful court, too, where we're playing. Um, a couple years ago, I got to open the McEnroe Challenge on that court. And it's a beautiful court. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. It, I, I had a, a condo down in uh, Rancho Mirage there for about 25 years. Um, so I've always loved the desert. And and I'm so old that, you know, I used to play it when it was at Mission Hills and then it was at uh, La Quinta and then the Hyatt and then uh, or the other way around. And then uh, now ended up where it, where it has it uh, at the garden there, which is a magnificent site. And, you know, what a great place for the players. I mean, we're talking about spectators, but for players to come in and have that facility for the two weeks and an opportunity to play some great matches, but also to work on their games as well in an environment where there's about 3,000 courts there. Uh, the weather is perfect. I mean, how bad can it be? And, uh, and we can watch them do their thing and, 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 you know, get ready for a great season again. So uh, I'm so pleased to be here. And Kamal, I think it's where World Team Tennis needs to go. I mean, think about how we evolved, where it's come now 46 seasons into this. Billie Jean King is a co-founder, now the ownership group and everyone that's been part of this. We're very fortunate to be coaching these wonderful franchises, but in a place that really is what Rick Leach called the destination, where people from around the West Coast can really come and see World Team Tennis really for the first time. They've always had teams in California, but now to come to one space and get such great value for their tennis dollar, I think it's going to be extraordinary for World Team Tennis evolving to the next stage. Yeah. And you talked about how it's been around 46 years. Between JL and Rick, they've got 41 years of World Team Tennis experience. So I got to ask you, JL, give me your your craziest world team tennis, your most memorable world team tennis moment. Well, let it start on, on the tennis court. I think, you know, as a youngster, I, I played uh, for the New Jersey Stars with Martina Navratilova in Springfield, where I'm the coach now. And I won't, uh, we'll never forget it. We, we, we drove in with Harley Davidson's because Martina loved the motorbikes. There was three and a half thousand people. So that was, I mean, that was for me as a youngster, it was a crazy experience. You know, playing with Martina was one of my, my heroes growing up. And the craziest off the court in, in, in St. Louis, I was with Andy Roddick and we actually got mugged, man. I had a gun to my head. So it was uh, crazy. So I always think about, you know, when I think about world team tennis, I think about driving with Harley Davidson's and then my only experience, you know, uh, having a gun to my head was crazy. But I mean, it doesn't take away all the, the awesome memories that I have from this great event. Rick, what about you? Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of team tennis um, as a kid. I, I watched the LA Strings play. Um, I, I watched Lloydie play. He played with Jimmy Connors. I watched Chris Everett. Um, also, we had a team in Orange County called the Anaheim Oranges for one year in 1975. And uh, I remember watching VJ Amitraj. And so growing up, I was a huge fan. It meant a lot to me to support my home team. And so when I got a chance to play, I jumped at it. And like Jay was just saying, I got to play against Connors, Lloydie, um, Martina, and uh, Venus and, you know, it was McEnroe. I mean, it's, it's amazing the players that play every year. And uh, I think it's just, I just love the format and I can't wait for this year. Yeah. Well, you know, this year we've got Grand Slam champion, Grand Slam finalists, um, Grand Slam doubles champions and finalists to be playing this late in the year and to be this committed to this. 
is a true testament to the league. What do you think? We I, I last year was my first time coaching world team tennis, and I thought it was, you know, tennis is a player first sport, right? But I feel like world team tennis, it's a team sport, and you get as a coach, you have the opportunity to really impact. You know, Luke, you stole that match from me last year. It came down to the final point, and you walked around the stadium stalling with your wooden racket, high-fiving fans when we weren't supposed to be touching fans because of COVID. You froze my players out, right? Made the girls serve a second serve, and boom, you all win. But the ability for a coach to sort of have an impact in the match like that. Last year, Luke, you did it to me. I was a rookie. You were a veteran. You pulled a veteran move. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what do you what do you what does this league need to do to sort of grow right and and um highlight the the team aspect of it the the, the importance of being able to coach and we hear about the tours now entertaining in match coaching coaching calls uh you know by wta players and you know perhaps one day the atp players what do you think we need to do as a league to try to see um you know this format sort of bleed over globally I think we have a tremendous opportunity through the various platforms and going back to last year's match, you can only blame the Hawkeye. You can't blame me. If, if the Hawkeye had called that ball out, you're winning that thing. It was in by just a couple of millimeters. Oh, he admitted it. Give me half of your bonus. Give me half of your bonus then because my bonus got cut in half because of the Hawkeye and then you just admitted Horrible. the ball again. So I think I should get half. Feel horrible, horrible for you about that. Horrible. <laughs> well, um, that was one of the, I gotta say that was one of, one of the most exciting matches I've ever seen, and it was yeah, great for TV, yeah. and uh, I think it was great for World Team Tennis altogether. So, you know, you think about the players that play, how great they are, the up and coming champions. I mean, we had Jenny Brady last year, who um, you know went from World Team Tennis to winning Lexington to the semifinals of the U.S. Open, and then later the finals of the Australian Open. So, I think it's a great springboard for the players as well. Yeah, and yeah. The, going back to that last tiebreaker, I mean, how many matches in tennis history come down to one deciding point? It's never happened. We always play ad tennis on the tour, and uh, but this situation after 45 years, it comes down to, you know, basically a women's doubles match where all four, actually five competitors, because you subbed out Jeannie Bouchard, who is world-class, no, that match specifically, I felt that final set, nobody lost it. I mean, if Sloan Stevens hitting winners when you subbed her in was scaring us like crazy. And everybody was playing at such a high level for it to come down to one match, one point, and no one missed a shot. Everybody was hitting winners, even the very last point where Coco, you know, Coco Vanderway just going for a forehand and hits it. When you think about that, at that at that moment, you had all four players in a single or a doubles Grand Slam final, Grand Slam semifinal. And you said it. Because of that, nobody missed. I mean, Sloan, to her credit, right? She had a first serve, the last two points of a match, with everything, everybody's bonus riding on it, yep. right? And then yep. Coco just ripped the forehand yep. with everybody on her side riding or bonus riding on it. I mean, the bravery of those four women yeah. mm. was just like, damn. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like you, 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 you hated to lose, but you couldn't be mm. mad, you know? Yeah. So you talked about, you know, Rick, um, the impact you see people going on to do so well after World Team Tennis. In 2017, when Sloan was coming back from her injury, she went and played Wimbledon, got the triple crown, 
falls first round in mix, falls first round in singles, first round in dubs, goes on to play world team tennis, and then wins the U.S. Open. Talk about how, you know, over the years, we've seen some young players pass on world team tennis in the summer, which I think is a humongous mistake, right? And those players that play go on, like Jim Brady and Sloan did, to have great hard court seasons. Talk about why that is. Well, I, I remember as a player, I would be seeing the ball so big after World Team Tennis because, you know, every point's so important. You know, with the no-ad scoring, you, you can't afford to, uh, to play poorly on the big points or you lose. So, uh, actually, this year we have Amanda Anasmova playing on our team, and I'm really excited to work with her because at one time, you know, she was, I think, about 23 in the world. She's dropped down into the 70s, but I think this is really going to help her. And, you know, after her father passed away, she hasn't been able to do as well. And, and uh, I'm excited to try to help her and take her back to that top level again. Mm. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. But you think about the young players, right, who have the opportunity, who still are like kind of getting their feet wet on a tour, haven't been in a lot of pressure moments having to have a guy like Rich or John or Luke or JL or myself, who's been to, you know, coach people to a Grand Slam title, having them be able to coach you in the middle of the match to maybe like you're getting paid to learn. Like, mm. so like, you know, a uh, Coco Golf or uh, a Layla Fernandez, you are getting paid to spend time with some legends in the game and learn in the middle of a match. I mean, that is just an experience that I wish more young up and coming players take advantage of. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree totally. I, I, what Rick was saying earlier on about, you know, the, the pressure points. I mean, team tennis, it's a brutal league in, in terms of, I mean, you know, when you get hold of the players that, you, I'm not saying anybody relaxes when they're 40 love and all that stuff in matches and they're up three love. No, you don't, you try and harden every point, but every single point is crucial. I mean, you might be down four love, but if you can somehow, grab back one or two games that can mean the difference of your team winning and when they learn that when they get and most players like the team aspect because let's face it on the circuit tennis is a pretty selfish sport I mean that's what you're but but when we were kids most players play a lot of doubles they play you know in, in schools and, and then maybe colleges whatever so they like that part where, where some weeks of the year you can actually you know be in a team environment you know Billie Jean King Cup and Davis Cup and so on and team tennis, you get that opportunity with your with your friends, you know, and every point is vital. You know how much it means to the team and the pressure it creates. And if you can come through those no-ad points, every point is vital. And I, I believe, you know, as we've said about other players, I had an example in team tennis with uh, Ryan Harrison the first year he played. He came in ranked about 180 and uh, he came in at the last minute because Dan Evans pulled out and he ended up winning the singles and the doubles and we ended up winning it. And then he zoomed up the ranking list and he always gives a lot of credit for it because it, it helps him play those pressure points well. And I, I think it, it's a great springboard to play team tennis. I really do. Yeah. And, you know, I always wonder, you know, why all these years we haven't been able to make more traction. The calendar is so packed. 
Mm. It's hard to find a time where you can get the better players, you know, because tennis is so global and world team tennis is in America. Like we've got to find a way to bring the globe, to incorporate players from overseas, not just the U.S. players who live in Florida, Cali, Texas, whatever. Um, but, you know, one of the things I like about this is also the matchups. Last year, think about Brandon Akashima. Think about another example of a guy who, like, was like, oh, I mean, two years ago, I started, I said, oh, this boy can play. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about World Team Tennis last year. He kicked everybody's ass except for Mitchell Kruger and Steve Johnson, right? So he beat right. Taylor Fritz, Query, all these guys, and then Mitchell Kruger beats him 5-0. And I'm like, that's just <laughs> an example of a matchup problem. Right. <laughs> Tell me well, about what you think about that. I think it gave Brandon a lot of confidence. You know, he's, he's done really well since Team Tennis. So that was a huge springboard for him. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, how you convert on those no ad points, huh? Those deciding points, it's amazing. If you come out and you can somehow win that battle and just some, that really moves it. And, and Brandon, I mean, he beat Jack Sock in that final match. That was 6-0. That changed the entire <laughs> complexion of that final. And we were, we were kind of leaning on you guys. And then just like that one set of bagel, and then it flipped the script. And then we were just playing from behind until the very end. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you, when you guys have a young player like that, right, in team two, especially in tennis, right, you like got to be really careful not to overcoach, right? So you bring together these five players, some double specialists, some single specialists, some singles players that hate to play doubles, and you're trying to sort of have an impact on the match without getting in the way. How much coaching versus motivating do you do, JL? I'll let you, you're, you're, the, you're the veteran here at World Team Tennis Coaching. How much how much coaching versus motivating do you do in the middle of the matches? Well, what I actually do is I try to speak to the players and their coaches before the season to try and figure out, just to understand them better. Because the last thing you want to do is to try and get technical with the player in that situation. Mm-hmm. So try and figure out what's the most important thing to tell under in the tough circumstances. So I have a good idea what these players like. And most of these guys, they know what to do. I mean, they it's more motivating and, you know, just reminding them of the things that they want me to remind. I think that's the, that's for me, that's helped a lot. I mean, I really try and and know who my players are that's playing for me. And uh, according to that, you know, I'll go about it in tough situations to help them. Mm. Yeah. You know what I thought was interesting. The person on my team last year who sought out the most help was Rajiv Ram. And he had just won Australian Open doubles title, right? And I can't play a lick of doubles. And quite often he would say, what do you see? Where should I go? And I was like, oh, shit, you're the Grand Slam champion. You tell me what you see, right? But it, <laughs> it was so, it was so you know, refreshing to be able to have like a two-way conversation about, and really probably all he was looking for was confirmation on what he thought was the right thing to do. Um, but also I found that to be very mature, right? Uh, of him to sort of seek that kind of counsel in the middle of the match and not want to let the team down. Um, That's so important. Yeah, I mean, I I was very fortunate to play with uh, Rick at USC. This is way back in the day, but my real first coaching experience um, was Dick Leach. His dad was our head coach at Southern Cal and he'd sit on the court with me 
and really bring out kind of the tactical side, not the emotional side, but really how I was using my tools to be most effective against certain styles or what you call matchups. We talked about that earlier. And that was how I kind of coached the same thing. How can I draw a Kim Kleisters? How can I draw other players that we have into their very best tactical mind to use their weapons effectively? That was a huge learning experience for me back in the day. Mm. No pressure, yeah. Rick. No, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I just, I love what Rajiv, you know, said to you because um, to me, the way you get better is, is to, you know, ask questions. And even when you win, you ask questions, how, what can I do better? Um, you know, I was coaching Leander Payas on the tour after matches, we would talk about even when he won, you know, what can he do better? And, you know, Rajiv's coming off a grand slam win, but he's trying to, you know, improve. And that's why he's still playing at such a high level because he's, if you can always improve every time you step on the court, you're going to, you know, be pretty awesome at the end. Yeah. I, I, Mama, I, that's, but yes, I, I was going to say it, it's, you know, as, as everybody's been saying, it's, it's getting to know your players. And obviously sometimes in team tennis, you come in an environment where the players come in and you, you've seen them play, but you don't know them. And, and you have to kind of figure that out pretty quickly because there are different things. When I was Davis cup captain for great Britain, I had some, <laughs> just talking about three players, as an example, I, I was on the court with, with Andy Murray, Greg Rosetsky and Tim Henman. So Andy Murray, I knew beforehand that he had a, and still does have a tendency to shout at his coach. Even if he misses an easy ball, you know, he blasted his coach. That's his way of venting. Well, I'm thinking to myself, I don't want some young kid venting at me for five hours live on TV. Uh, and I can't just go up to him and say, you say one more word and I'm walking off the court, which I could if it was a normal tournament. I can't in the Davis Cup. So I came up with an idea of talking with Brad Gilbert beforehand, who obviously was never short of a word or two. And so I said to Brad, you know, what do I tell Andy? And he says, well, I'll tell you what to say. So he would tell me instructions. And then when Andy would come in and he was mad and he would say to me, you know, he'd start shouting and I'd say, look, go to the guy's forehand. And he would start to abuse me. And I'd say, no, no, he said it. And so I point at Brad behind me. So, so that's how I did it with him. And then Greg Rosetsky was completely the opposite. Greg would come in and tell you how he was playing. So he would like, you know, ba 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 ba. He had verbal diarrhea, you know, ba 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 ba. And he would say, he would say, uh, he'd say, Coach, uh, Captain, I'm hitting my backhand, great, aren't I? Well, he just missed ten in a row. So I would say, well. Yeah, yeah, you are. But instead of trying to come over the ball, I didn't want to say that you don't have that shot. But I said, instead of coming over it, why don't you hit your slice? He said, yeah, 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 I'll do that. But I'm hitting it well, aren't I? Yeah, you're hitting it well. And that's what I had to say to him. And Tim Henry was just, he just wanted one instruction just to be aggressive. And that's all I said. And when I said it too much, he gave me a look and then I shut my mouth. Right. But it was, but you learn, you know, you have to try and learn. Team tennis, sometimes it's a very quick, to, because everybody is different. This is a, you know, so you've got to learn what they what they like and what they don't like, when not to talk too much and when you talk maybe a little bit more than maybe you would with other players. So it's it's fun to, to try and learn while you have the quick time to do it. Yeah. Um, for me, the great thing about team tennis is you have your diff, you have your senior guys, the veterans on the tour, you have your juniors, you know, guys that are 17, 18 year olds that um, everybody thinks are going to make it. And then you have your guys that's played on the tour for a while. So when you get a guy like a Rajiv or you know, the older guys that one slams and wanting to ask questions. It's a great way also for our coaches to help teach these younger kids to say, you see this guy, he's always wanting info. He's always wanting to be better. So um, ask questions, ask these guys questions. I mean, walk around, not just your own team. There's so many great players 
around, you've got to ask them questions, you know, mm. get their opinions on things. And then you, and then you take in all the information and you, and you can slot it into where, where you want to go. I also say, you know, copy and paste, you only do on a computer. But uh, you've got to know where you want to go and you've got to learn from everybody and then you slot it in where you want to go. And it's a great opportunity with team tennis when you have Grand Slam champions playing in the same team as a 19, 20-year-old trying to make it. They must just ask questions. Yeah. Didn't you find, too, I, I, we found that Kim Kleisters was almost really the head coach out there. She had the respect from everybody else on the team, and she has such a great eye for tendencies and trends that are going on in the court. And she was like, honestly, a head coach out there throughout the entire season, even though towards the end of last season she got hurt, but she was so involved. And I think that's what the older players do with the younger players. They also help us coach. Yeah. 100%. They model professionalism, you know, in terms of being on time, right? You know, normally in tennis, you, you're on your own schedule, right? Practice starts when you get there as a pro right. tennis player, right? Right. right. But on the team thing, you know, everybody got to eat a little bit of their ego and show up on time. And, you know, Bethany, you bring the radio, you bring the tunes, right? Everybody sort of has a role, you know? Um, and it was, it, it was great to see. It was a great experience last year with all those personalities. I mean, we had Jeannie, Sloan, Bethany, Big personalities, right? Then we had Brandon, who like never said a word, right? Then we had Rajiv, who just this big dude. So, I mean, I think the blend of those, when you have the special groups like that, you know, we've all seen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I want to ask you guys, because, I mean, the four of you all have traveled all over the world. And team tennis aside, I wanted to get your favorite slam. I'll start with Rick. I'll start with you. Favorite Grand Slam and why? Well, well for me, it was always Wimbledon. You know, I, I grew up breakfast at Wimbledon watching, you know, the epic uh, Borg and McEnroe matches, watching Connors play and so to me, every time I played Wimbledon, I was a little more nervous. You know, I just, when you step on the courts at the All England Club, it's a different vibe and you just, diff, you know, you feel more nervous. You want to win more. So Wimbledon was always my, kind of my highlight of my year to play there. John? Well, I, I, you would think I'm going to say Wimbledon, but I won't. <laughs> you would think I won't, that. I won't say Wimbledon uh, because, uh, you know, I got, tight there to tell you the truth in singles I, I played pretty well in doubles I played well in mixed but I had someone else that uh, you know could take the pressure points but but in uh, in singles uh, I found it very difficult to cope uh, to cope with the pressure that was on so for me it was always an experience there and you know it, it's a stupid thing when you look back at it in the past I've written a book so I'm gonna I've written all this stuff and people are gonna go really but in those days you didn't have agents you didn't have all that stuff so for me just getting tickets for people, I had to do it all on my own. I know it sounds like a stupid cop-out, but it would take hours and you got to play a match the next day. And you're more worried about whether you've got your relatives that you didn't even know you had from someplace in England you didn't even know existed that wanted a ticket to the damn place. And so, you know, it was like, I, I was always, it was always this stuff going, no excuse, it was pathetic, but I never played well there. So 
I think people generally prefer the slams where they played best. And I played best in the Australian. And so that was always my fun part because I was as far away from Britain as I could possibly be. No one knew me there from Adam, basically. And plus in my day, you know, we had some good times. I got to tell you, in my day, <laughs> times are different like now. In my, in my day- That's my what day, I want to hear. Well, yeah. I'll, bring I'll, the stories. I'll just, I'll just give you a quick example. In my day there that, you know, they had these lovely ladies with drivers of the cars. I can't remember, it was a cigarette sponsor. I can't remember what it was now. But in those days, it wasn't taboo to ask them out. And so we weren't shy. So, you know, we, we had a lot of fun in those days. It wasn't like we had entourages where you had to do this and do that. No, 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 no. You did what you want to do. And so anyway, Australian Open is my favorite. I won't say any more because this I want to is read your book. A, it's probably a PG rated uh, audience here. But, but anyway, Australian was my favorite. Now, now, John, it's funny because on tour now, we always joke about how the Brits struggled at Wimbledon mm. and how they caved to the pressure. Before you move on to Luke, what advice do you have for Emma? Right, because we've seen when you, when a, when a British player makes it, kind of like an American player, we get so, Brits get so excited about them and we see it just crumble them. Yeah. What advice do you have for the young players? Well, I mean, obviously, it's easy for me now to say it now because I'm not there doing it and I didn't do it then. But, you know, Tim Henman, even though he didn't win it, Tim Henman embraced that pressure. You know, people say he didn't win it. Yeah, but he got to about nine, uh, I'm exaggerating, but semifinals and he was four in the world. And he, if anything, he overachieved. So, and Andy Murray embraced the pressure. He loved it, being sleeping in his own bed and all that stuff. I hated that stuff. He did. I would say to Emma, You've got, to, you've got to embrace it. Listen, the pressure on her is going to be immense, but she's already won a slam. No one can ever take that away from her. So I would, she's got to embrace it. And some friendly advice to her, stop changing coaches every two days. How about that? That would be my advice. That helps. Yeah. All right, Luke, favorite, favorite Grand Slam stop? Well, they're all, as you know, they're similar because they're siblings, but they're all a little different. And I default to what, Lloydie said, you go where you want. And for whatever reason, I always played great in Paris. I played great in the juniors there, won uh, the juniors in doubles with Patrick Mackner over Boris Becker and the Winogradsky, a French guy. And then playing the in the seniors, winning with Murphy in 93 was the most special thing in my life. And But I played the other slams with my sisters in mixed doubles, but it's where you win. And I always felt mm. great there. Yeah. 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 Speaking of your brother, we're all thinking about him, Luke. Yeah. Thank you. Tom Murphy, Thank we you, said coach. hello. Yeah. Giving him positive thoughts and energy. JL, what about you, brother? Uh, for, me, for me to say, man, my, my first semifinal in the Grand Slam when I was 19 was the Australian Open. And uh, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's a great place. Because from South Africa, you know, um, with rugby, Australian All Blacks are the two teams that we always want to beat. So we, we grew up, you know, with Australia and New Zealand. And uh, yeah, just be making my semifinals there. And I've had some great results there. I mean, I was unfortunate. I lost to somebody on this group. I served for the match in the finals of the mixed doubles. I will not say I don't like the guy all that. <laughs> we should have won that one, um, <laughs> I know. Just like <laughs> the elbow was very big. <laughs> and then, you know, we... And then, you know, I, I, mean, I actually, I became fourth at the 2000 Olympic Games there. And uh, uh, that was not great. I mean, coming fourth at the Olympics, the worst, worst ever. I'd rather come last. Yeah. But I mean, it's been a, in Australia, the amazing thing about Australia is just the atmosphere. You know, in our days, 
you still had, you know, the, the Swedes coming, everybody dressed up. I mean, it was noise. It was like Davis Cup every day. So it's always been great. But I think, you know, Wimbledon for everybody is special because it's the holy ground of tennis. You know, you walk in there and we forget sometimes. We walk in and we just expect, oh, yeah. Um, you know, I have a thing every day now at Wimbledon when I walk in, you know, I just stand still for like, you know, five seconds and say thank you for the opportunity because people will give anything to go a place mm. like Wimbledon. And I had mm. that experience where I took a South African swimmer who won the gold medal of the Olympics and we we're standing on the veranda outside of Wimbledon and he says, this is the greatest sporting experience of my life. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me, man. You won the gold medal of the Olympics. I said, man, I've always dreamt about coming to Wimbledon. Yeah. So uh, we're very fortunate, I think all of us, you know, being able to travel around the world and go to very special places. There's a lot of people that never have the opportunity and I think we need to embrace it. And, you know, uh, and that's one of our things also as coaches, you know, we have to teach our players, you know, to appreciate what they've got and appreciate the places they go to, appreciate the people they meet because there's special people that hang around tennis. Mm. Well said. Yeah. Well, I would say I never played in any of the Grand Slam. I don't even belong on this podcast with you guys. But Not I true. would say as a coach, oh, man. I, I evaluate the Grand Slams differently. I evaluate them based on the ability to manage the environment. And I find that the U.S. Open is the most difficult of the four to manage from traffic and transportation and, you know, not getting food poisoning and tickets, right? Being on the oil. And then, you know, the bed bug thing in the in New York City hotels a couple of years ago. I mean, I, all those things like kept me up at night. It's like, all right, let's go out. We, we, we ate here on Saturday. Nobody got sick. Let's go here every day. <laughs> right? You, know, you, you got a good draw. You're hitting the ball well. Family's all behaving. Everybody's in line. Let's just not get sick, right? Come on, let me tell you something. That's, that's great coaching. In, in 1988, I was in the finals of the doubles and had to default because of food poisoning at the U.S. Open. Oh. So, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, as a coach, you don't mess with streaks and you keep the routine. And I would say good coaching to you on that one. <laughs> and then I think from a management standpoint, Wimbledon is probably the easiest, but it's also the sleepiest. So it's easy for a player that needs a little stimulus, stimulation to get bored. So to me, the perfect blend is French Open. Mm. You can pretty much always get a court, right? Either as at Jean Bois, right? If you can't get on site. Paris is like a big city, but really small. There's good shopping, which I coach girls and they love to shop, right? So you can get a little stimulus. <laughs> and then as a coach, you can sneak out to Miss Cole and grab a drink. You know what I mean? So I think that, you know, for me, Paris is only 10 minutes to the site. That was one of the, it's easy to manage, but not too sleepy, where you don't mind being there for two weeks, right? So that's sort of my favorite. I mean, and we happen to win there, or, you know, get to the finals and almost win. Uh, uh, but that, that's sort of like when I look at them, you know, I look at New York as a nightmare, Australia, you got family and kids back home, you're not getting any sleep because you're still trying to like be present back in the States. Wimbledon's great, it's peaceful, you can walk to the site, but gets, you know, I can only eat Wimbledon tandoori you know, so much. <laughs> well, I want to put you on the spot because you've yep. been asking us questions. How have you evolved as a coach? I mean, World Team Tennis was a great experience, but you coached a player to win a Grand Slam. Sloan Stevens wins the U.S. Open, finals of the French. I mean, how have you evolved in really a short period of time? Um, you know what? I, I think that, A, 
not not having played pro tennis and never have even wanted to play pro tennis, it allowed me to enter the game with a lot of humility and like just to being willing to just do whatever. You need some hairpins, you need some tampons, you need an extra towel, you need Gatorade. <laughs> I'm going to get it all, right? Because when you win, I win, right? So, and I was also one of four, one of four siblings, right? So I shared a room with my sister to the age of 16. So yeah. I, was, I entered the game with a certain level of humility uh, and didn't really have anything to prove or wasn't trying to relive. You know, you see some coaches out there trying to just, you know, hang on to like their lost days. And that wasn't me. I was kind of like, well, shit, you know, Paris is cool. I, I, I can't watch the NBA games because the hotel you know, room doesn't have ESPN too, you know. So um, I think so that that's how I entered the game, which allowed me to sort of take advice from people like you all, like Billy, like Zena Garrison. Um, and then I'll be honest. Um, I think that I got a little more relaxed as it went on because I sort of, I, would, I, I got to know the player and you, you started to sort of trust the player to work it out. Early on, I was like, I was going to speak on everything, right? If I saw something, I was going to speak on it, right? Uh, whether it was a good time or bad time. And then I started to sort of pick my spots, yeah. right? On when to say, what to say, how much to say. Um, but I would, uh, so I, that's sort of, I've gotten more strategic in terms of uh, that. And then after that, once you get a very, because what happens is, you're getting more seasoned and the player's also getting older, right? And so you've kind of got to let them grow and be an adult. Um, but I would say where I struggled, even at this point, is when to poke the bear. Because mm -hmm. as you coach uh, someone that is now a veteran, right? You can sort of like say, okay, no, she's got it. She's going to work it out. And I think you can get that wrong a lot. And mm -hmm. so if I had to give advice to any coach, like right now, coaching on tour, I would say always poke the bear. I mean, because there are some matches where maybe everything wasn't right prior to the match. And I didn't want to speak on it and sort of just disrupt and piss off the player to a point where they couldn't recover. But then in the middle of a match, it was like, shit, I should have said it. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I think that mm. early on, I was always poking the bear. Then I got a little more strategic. And then I got a little soft. Right. And so if, if and when I do coach again, I'll go back to strategically poking the bear and always speaking on it because these problems don't work themselves out. Um, mm. You know, there's some players where, hey, you're coaching Roger Federer, stand in the corner, don't talk too much, don't get in the way. Right. You're coaching okay. Serena, just stand there and look good. Don't, don't talk too much, don't annoy me, bring the rackets, bring the water, bring the towel. Right. I got this. But then everybody else, you sort of got to like be in it, right? Mm -hmm. And help them work it out. Um, yeah. And so that, that's sort of how I've evolved. And now, you know, now I'm just, I'm actually grateful that from where I came from and my experience in tennis, that I'm actually being, you know, being able to commentate for Tennis Channel, coach World Team Tennis, get to the finals, you know, in our first year, and then get to learn from you guys. So that's why I always ask you guys questions. Because again, I've got no ego. I've got nothing to prove. You know, Rick, even at your old age, brother, you can still kick my ass. <laughs> well, you know, something my dad taught me was check your ego in at the gate. There's always somebody better than you. And, and with coaching, especially, you have to check your ego in with your players. And so I, I think he's well said. Yeah. yeah. Great Thank advice. you, guys. Well, look, I look forward to seeing you guys in a couple of days. Um, for those who are listening, 
Look, World Team Tennis is a great format. It's a great time. We've been tennis deprived during this pandemic. Indian Wells is a great destination. The guys on this call are some of the most humble tennis legends. So if you're on site, if the player doesn't sign your autograph, Luke will. So come <laughs> on. So, so come on out and join us. And uh, thank you for listening. This has been the Tennis.com podcast. Uh, this week, we've had the honor of being with JL, uh, Luke Jensen, Rick Leach, and John Lloyd. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks. 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 You guys. Thanks, Good guys. Good job, guys. <laughs>